Once again, our partnership with the uh, Star Tribune editorial board uh, returns a couple weeks off. John Rash and DJ Tice are with us. They are both on the Centerpoint Energy Home Service Plus hotline. A pleasure to chat with you gentlemen as always. I'm going to read from a Star Tribune story in the uh, last 30 minutes. John, you go first. U.S. Attorney Erica McDonald is mobilizing a multi-agency command center for a new task force aimed at curbing an extraordinary spike in violence in the Twin Cities that has been on the rise since Memorial Day. She outlined a 30-day operation that will deploy state and federal law enforcement across a dozen agencies in response to the spike in gun violence and other crimes since George Floyd's death. Um, do you gentlemen believe, John, you first, that Jacob Fry, Madeira Ardando, members of the city council, other leaders have an outfront, have been as out front and as outspoken as they need to be considering what has happened? Because it's it's daily. It is staggering what continues to happen in Minneapolis over the last few weeks. Well, indeed, some members of the Minneapolis City Council may not welcome this move, but I think that most importantly and profoundly, residents of the city of Minneapolis will welcome any kind of intervention that they can get from any kind of federal, state, regional, local, city agency to be able to stem this horrific rise in violence within the city confines. And so I think that this is reflective of an extraordinarily challenging summer, and as the summer temperatures climb, it creates conditions that sociologists have pointed out for decades to only exacerbate the problem. And I think it comes amid the political problem of the well-intentioned but perhaps poorly timed efforts um, in terms of what to do about the Minneapolis police force and there seems to be a clear collision course between what some of the public, including some people in these highly affected crime areas, what um, the city council wants, what the mayor wants to see have happen, what the police chief wants to see have happen, and increasingly a big story over in St. Paul in terms of what the legislature wants to see, especially before they would approve any kind of funds to be able to help rebuild some of the torn down areas after the protests in a month or so ago. So this story keeps getting bigger, and let's hope that the crime wave itself gets smaller very soon. DJ, let's get to part of what John had to say, because you do hear some people saying that some who are involved in the crime may be emboldened by the defund the police talk. Do you think that has merit? Well, I, I can't read anybody's mind, but it certainly is striking how much of a kind of Wild West atmosphere was unleashed once this crisis broke, uh, and especially in the wake of the unrest on the streets. So one does get the sense of a uh, of a feeling of license out there and of greater safety uh, in you know take, settling your scores. Uh, out on the streets, and in, indeed, one does hear some anecdotal reports of uh, police seeming to to hold back. Imaginable uh, that this sir. Hopefully, 
And let me jump in, Dan. Why don't you put uh, DJ on hold? It seems like the um, the cell phone is breaking up a little bit. Uh, we'll get Doug right back on the line. John, you also mentioned a special session. That is going to happen next week. And a lot of that is driven by the governor and wanting to extend his uh, emergency powers, and he's coming up on the deadline. At the same time, police reform is a part of it. And we're going to try to get top Democrat, top Republican on the show tomorrow to talk about it. DJ's back. Why should observers, whether they're leaning to the left or leaning to the right, feel like that a few weeks away from St. Paul, will cause an agreement when, to be blunt, John, on police reform, it didn't seem like they were very close at all on police reform. Because I think that when uh, they broke up last time, people went back to their districts or the governor went back and mulled this over and realized that, you know, ideally failure is not indeed an option here and that this issue is so significant to Minnesotans that something needs to get done. An issue can be plural there in terms of issues, not just police reform, but the need for public investment, particularly in a pandemic constricted economy is higher than ever. And so not being able to some come to some kind of accord does not match Minnesotans expectations. And so coming back together, you know, again, Hopefully, we'll concentrate some minds and hopefully lead to compromise. We are the only state in the union right now that has a split legislature between the House and the Senate, and that would suggest that compromise needs to occur. And it's not always easy to get there, but I think it's necessary that it's arrived at during this second special session coming up. DJ's back with us. Uh, DJ asked John about the special session. Yeah. Uh, well, Do you think anything's going to get done? On, uh, let me to pick up on the police issue, particularly, sure. and the need for compromise. Uh, yeah, yeah, I hate to be overly cynical, but uh, there is a tendency for these caucuses, when you have a division in the legislature, particularly, to think uh, not only or not primarily in terms of what the public interest uh, needs, but to think about what positions them best for the election ahead. Uh, And I think there's a great temptation here for on the Democratic side to think that they've got the upper hand going into the fall. If they can just keep the Republicans, you know, linked to Donald Trump and uh, do nothing, you know, won't cooperate with any compromise, keep that, that image there, that they're in a good position. On the other hand, the Republicans want to offer things that look like compromise, like let's just do away with arbitration for all public employees, which is just as a political reality, something the DFL can't accept. So they're guaranteed that nothing will really happen, but they can try to make it look like they're trying to compromise. I hate to say it, but that's the way things work over there sometimes. And until I see different, it looks to me the way it's working this year. Gents, uh, hang on. Let's pause. Let's uh, turn to D.C. Let's turn to the president and what he's been saying the la- today about schools, the effect that it might have in Minnesota, and obviously the politics all around it. 
Chad Hartman with DJ Tice and John Rash playing politics with the Star Tribune. Earl Gray is a well-known defense attorney in this state. Today he filed a motion and documents is supporting to dismiss charges against former officer and his client Thomas Lane. Earl Gray is on this show at 205 to answer questions on that topic. We continue now with playing politics with uh, DJ and John. DJ, today the president tweets, cites a number of other countries and how they have opened up schools and basically says, why can't we? And, in fact, if you don't open up schools, I might hold off on funding. What is your reaction to what the president had to say and how this may play politically? Well, I think uh, it's going to play differently in different parts of the country and in the, uh, different factions. But my sense is that, you know, concerns are increasing uh, in large parts of the of the, the country, uh, you know, as the numbers increase and that people are going to be a little uneasy about this and especially about the idea that there's one solution that ought to be dictated from the White House. I don't know how much of a empty threat it is that, you know, how much he can control in that fashion single-handedly, but it obviously applies, uh, you know, tremendous pressure. And, you know, I think it's going to be a very mixed uh, reaction, but, you know, he's doubling down on his, uh, you know, sort of shrug off the, uh, the pandemic strategy. John, can this play with the undecided group, right? Uh, we know it'll play well with the Trump loyalists. We know those who abhor them are just going to look at this and shake their head. But the group that maybe voted Obama in 12 and then voted Trump 16, and it's a bigger group than people think, the group that uh, maybe didn't vote in 16 and is inclined to vote in 20, can Donald Trump convince them that he, his administration, his party, is all about opening schools and Democrats are only holding this back because they want to make the president look bad? I don't believe that the vast majority of the public believes that Democrats will not open schools because they want the president to look bad. There is pressure all around, as G.J. so correctly noted, in terms of the challenges that so many key constituencies face including parents and their relationship to a teetering economy in terms of their ability to be able to work. It is not easy for many, many parents across the country. And this is something that truly crosses state and party lines, you know, when they have kids at home. And yet you're talking about the health of children as well as teachers and administrators and everyone who works within the school system. Anyone who has taken a look at this, who has kids in the system, realizes the incredible challenges of making a decision and then implementing it, and that not only is it not business as usual, but it will be expensive in terms of how whatever is arrived at is implemented. And the last thing that schools need is uncertainty regarding their funding to be able to do that. You just think about all the masks, all the PPE, the extra cleaning equipment. Mm -hmm just all of the things to administer, even if kids do go back. And the idea that the president of the United States is threatening to cut funding is not helpful um, and also I don't think helps him politically. I think he's really misreading this. 
as he has nearly the entire um, length of the pandemic, not just most profoundly from a public health perspective, but from a political perspective as well. And so I think it's just one more attempt at the president to politicize this and people look at it profoundly differently because it's their children who are at stake. I do think that there's some, uh, you know, there's some tendency for people to look for a halfway solution, you know, the increased classroom uh, learning, but, uh, you know, some distance learning to minimize the spread of the virus and so on. And in many respects, that seems administratively and logistically the most difficult uh, solution to to implement. And, And yet for various reasons, including you know, political calculations, it may be the most likely to try to split the difference. It, it, it sounds like a nightmare to me. And John, an let, let's, one, let's which, stay with which, COVID again, here. Yeah. Um, and, and, and let me just mention the president on Saturday at the White House offered up a, a statement, which just isn't factually true, saying 99% of COVID-19 cases are harmless. That's not true. Um we yesterday had more than 60,000 people in the country test positive. We've passed 3 million. We did have 993 people die yesterday. That's a huge number. That's the biggest in a month. But defenders of the president and those who say they're pointing out a huge part of this will say that yesterday was a bad number, no doubt about it, and any number's bad, but that the, the death number has not risen in any way close to the positive case number. Do you both, and John, you go first, the media has done a fair enough job in explaining all aspects of this, that, yes, we're seeing a huge spike in in areas, that, yes, the 99% statement is not close, but also that we should emphasize because a lot of the numbers are going up with 20 to 40-year-olds, that hospitals are better at treating people, that the, the sadly – the death count is still too high, but it hasn't spiked in correlation with the with the other numbers. Media is imperfect like any institution, and clearly there are aspects of this story that they have over or de-emphasized relative to its importance to the pandemic narrative. That being said, I think that they've been very data-driven. They have reported as many aspects and angles of this as I think is, is reasonable. The very fact that in your well-laid-out summation right there, that is the story that is happening, and and that is widely available on mainstream media, news sites, stations, newspapers, and other, you know, media outlets, suggest that they are trying to give that coverage. I think you, in your statistics, also really pointed out to one of the key differences, and most people understand this, that thankfully the rate of infection relative to the overall population in assisted living and and other long-term care facilities is is not as disproportionate as it was. It's still alarmingly high, but part of it is some of the big growth in infections has been among young people, which is very worrying, goes back to our conversation about schools as well. But while young people are getting this at at a really steep rate at this point, they have fewer comorbidity conditions that would lead to mortality. Thank goodness for that. But I think that a lot of people understand that's part of the reason why we see this, while we're seeing this spike in 
cases. We're not seeing a commensurate ratio of lethality to this, and let's hope that continues. So I think that's being communicated. Um, and I think that, you know, pursuant to your question about President Trump, public opinion polls across the board have shown that the public has very low confidence in what his presentation of this crisis is. They have much higher confidence in Dr. Fauci, as an example, which is why it's so tragic for the nation to see President Trump taking on Dr. Fauci, part of his administration, um, so publicly. It's, it's incredibly counterproductive. Yep. What do you think, DJ, on the, the overall area where we're at right now with COVID-19? Well, I, you know, I, back to the media question, I, I think the media has struggled in, in various phases of the uh, of the pandemic to keep things in, in context. But part of the trouble is our tendency now with everything is to is to boil it down to a binary alternative. Either the news is that it's terrible, disastrous, catastrophic, or the news is it's not that bad. Well, it's it's neither of those things exactly. It's always more com- complex than that. It is certainly true that we always knew that as we opened things up uh, and did more testing, we were going to see more infections. And in fact, we have. It, and it, it's certainly true that the early projections of deaths in Minnesota particularly, uh, but they, they simply have not borne out, nor the uh, hospitalization rates. We've never gotten anywhere near overwhelming the system and that kind of thing. Has all that been fully, fairly put in context for people? I'm not, I guess I'm not sure that it has, but I think that's partly because it's a moving target and a complex story. And uh, as John says, uh, the media is imperfect like all the rest of the players in this drama. Gentlemen, always appreciate it. Thank you so much. Look forward to uh, chatting once again next week. Thank you. Thank you, Ted.